Welcome to episode 199 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. Can you believe we're almost at 200 episodes about pinball delivered to you from New York City? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Canada. On this episode, I'm going to air a very special interview uh, with a Mr. Dave Sanders. Um, Dave is the lead designer at Highway Pinball, and I know what you're thinking. He's probably the last person on the planet that you would expect to come join the show. After all of the drama and tumultuous history I think this podcast has had with Highway Pinball, but I have to say this. I have to say this. I really appreciate Dave for reaching out and for having a conversation, not only about Highway Pinball, but also about the pinball hobby with me and with you, the listener, because you're about to hear what he says. Um, and I and, and look, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And I think one of the struggles I have with this show, and I'm going to talk about it in another context in, in a few seconds, one of the struggles I have with this show is my show is dedicated to you, the listener, to the pinball fan and hobbyist out there who loves pinball. I feel that I have an obligation to you in reporting what I know about what is going on in pinball and sharing opinions about the pinball hobby that I think you may agree or disagree with. Now, again, this show is 100% my opinion. Sometimes I have facts about companies that I learn that I will share with you, but again, my obligation is to you. I wouldn't have a listener base if I simply cheerleaded every single company and everything going on in pinball because I don't believe that everything going on in pinball should be cheerleaded or just blindly celebrated. But what I've also learned, and this is the hard part for me, and if you put yourself in my shoes is when I do say stuff about companies that isn't always positive, I have to always remember that there are people at these companies who are working really hard to maybe turn some of those negatives around. And there are people who are working really hard day in and day out to try and make a successful pinball company happen. Okay, You see, it's easy for me to pick up a, a headset and a USB headset and stick it in my computer and, and, and say something for a half hour, an hour uh, that has an influence and an impact on some of these companies and it's much harder for them to actually go manufacture pinball machines, right? It's much harder for them to make a profit and to be successful in what I believe is a very crowded marketplace, okay? Now, that being said though, that being said, that's life. That's the reality of life. Lots of people make movies and there are hundreds of people who review movies and some of them have a lot of influence on which movies we go see because we trust their reviews. Now, I think a lot of you out there trust my opinions about these companies and sometimes my opinions about these organizations may even lead you to buy a game or avoid a game based upon uh, my opinion. Okay, And look, that's again, that's just life. If anything you do, that you put into the public spectrum is open for criticism and critique and also open for praise and and adoration, okay? So, you know, Dave Sanders is working over at Highway Pinball and we all know that Dave and, and the people over there who are trying to make these alien games get out the door, they haven't necessarily been dealt the best hand by Andrew Highway and they've obviously struggled for years to get production going and get games out the door. And we all know the story. We know where they're at right now. And I think it's good that they are focusing their efforts 
on trying to get as many aliens out the door and get the quality of the machines where they need to be. Because it's a very, very difficult time to make people wait and to have delays and to have issues with your product. But above all, above all, the one good thing that they did do years ago is they picked a theme that people love. Alien is a property that a lot of people have a lot of passion for, and that is why people are still waiting for this game, right? If this was Mustang or WWE, I, you would never have people holding on for this long. So um, I look forward to you guys hearing the interview and hearing Dave explain what it was like going through that rough period and where they are right now. And then we also discuss his response to the Trippy Awards. Before I air that interview for you guys, I want to talk about another sort of company out there that has reached out to me because of some of the things I've said. And, and I knew I would get this sort of response. And, and that is P3 and Multimorphic. And Jerry is a great guy. And I've met Jerry many times at shows. And he reached out to me. And he, and he basically, I'm just paraphrasing, he asked me why I was negative on P3. And he asked me why... I would go after someone who put a pre-order down five years ago. And, and, and Jerry's right. He explained in his email that five years ago, the whole notion of pre-ordering a game, uh, it was all about investing in new pinball. Because at that time, all we had was Stern Pinball. And so for people that wanted another option, they really became the investors in the companies. You know, Jersey Jack raised something like $6.5 million before people even saw a game. And it was a period in time where people were quick to hand over their money. Now, yes, it is easy with hindsight being 2020 to look back at that behavior and think everyone who did that was foolish. And almost everybody who did that really stood to lose money and probably should have lost money and never got a game if these companies didn't get bailed out. Uh, but Jerry also let me know, and I agree with this, is that P3 wasn't like that. Multimorphic wasn't like that. Jerry's company, they never took people's money and didn't deliver. They never took people's money and lied to them about timelines and when things were happening. You know, I think Jerry's always been a very straight shooter in terms of here's, here's the reality. Here's how long it's going to take. And we are going um, to not sort of mislead you and, and screw you over with any falsities or mistruths. Okay? He's not like he's a complete opposite of, of an Andrew Highway who kept coming out and making all these promises that never came true. Okay, but at the end of the day, though, at the end of the day, the way I look at marketing and pinball and these companies and their chances of succeeding in the pinball marketplace, I have to call it like it is. And that's what I told Jerry is, you know, I, I get that you're building a platform that is in it for the long haul, right? That all the years and hard work and, and the innovation that you brought to pinball took a really long time. And my whole thing is, and my question for all of it, and this is not just a question of P3 and Multimorphic, it's a question of what Andrew Highway was doing. It's a question for anybody out there that looks at pinball and says to themselves, I need to innovate this product if I want to build a successful pinball company. And the reason why I question people who feel that pinball needed innovation is quite simply this. Over the last five years, Stern has sold probably tens of thousands of games and made millions of dollars while these other companies have faltered and flailed and struggled to sell even just a few hundred. So how can you guys who are innovating, how can you convince me 
that all the hard work and innovation that you've pumped into pinball has worked out, is successful, and ultimately is what the market wants. And I think the email I read from the last episode said it perfectly. There's a difference between marketing and sales. Marketing understands what there is a demand for in the marketplace. And if if these new companies understood that, they probably wouldn't have gone off and invented all this stuff or re-engineered or over-engineered pinball machines to the point where there's not even a market demand for that, okay? And so, look, content, your first game needs to be something that moves the platform. It's very much like a video game console. Would people have really been into Nintendo Entertainment System if the first game they released with it was, uh, you know, like track and field? It was Super Mario Brothers. That was the first game that built that entire platform. And so when I look at P3, and, and Jerry and I go back and forth on this, I mean, you're at the point now where, it, you know, what, Cart is a little bit in head of the horse. And without a game or a piece of content that really, you know, showcases or, 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 or makes people emotionally want to invest in the platform, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. And look, this isn't, this isn't for me to figure out. This isn't. This is like, if you have a company, it's you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure it out. And look, you're going to succeed or fail based upon the decisions you wanted to make. And I will call it like it is on this podcast. I'm sorry, but I, I can't just blindly support any new pinball venture that is out there. My overall opinion about this entire hobby is very simply this. Pinball is pinball. If you make a great pinball machine with a great theme, with great mechanisms, with great flow, with great code, you are going to most likely have buyers for that pinball machine. Pinball does not need to be completely re-engineered. Pinball does not need to be reinvented, okay? It's not that there's no market for that, okay? I also have questioned the whole notion of the swappable games. Every, there has never been in the history of pinball a successful example of the whole swappable playfield modular system of pinball. And yet we keep seeing people try to go back to the modular system of pinball while they, you know, while they struggle to create a demand for that, Stern is selling thousands and thousands of games. Chicago Gaming will sell thousands and thousands of games. Jersey Jack Pinball will sell thousands and thousands of games. So that is where we're at. Okay? Now look, I hope Jerry finds a great title to show people how great P3 can be. Ultimately, it's up to consumers to decide if they love it or don't like it. Um, Jerry has always been great in going to all the shows and letting people have hands-on time with the game. And if you buy a P3 and you love P3... That's awesome. I, I have a lot of fun playing P3 at the shows. I, 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 I think the connected games are one of the most enjoyable things in pinball. I think if P3 can figure out how to way to get connectivity and network the machines, I think that's the real differentiator for the platform. I really do. And I also love the fact that, that Jerry's built a machine that you can get kids into. I don't think there's any pinball machines out there that are really kid-friendly. And I think P3, with a lot of the games on it, 
are, are the perfect introduction to pinball for kids, especially for kids who spend all day long staring at devices and screens, and, and this has got a huge screen as the play field. I, I think it's a lot more... Um, uh, how do I say this, like a friendly and um, approachable for children than like an ACDC would be or, you know, or the walking dead or any modern pinball for that, for that matter of a fact. All right. So that's just, that's just where I'm at with this show. I, I, I it's not easy for me. All right. These are people that I, I really like personally, uh, but I have to keep it objective and honest on this show, or I don't think you would listen to this show. Okay. All right, before I hear the interview, one final thing. You know, I, I keep reading the J-pop thread keeps popping up about Deep Root and this and that. And here's the thing about Robert. And I, I keep, and this is the other part. I hear from people who, who know what's going on on the peripherals and it's not all positive and they have news and they have thoughts and opinions. But, you know, everybody always wants to talk to me off the record. They want to tell me stuff off the record. They don't want to tell me stuff specifically I think partially because they don't want to get sued or they don't want like Robert coming after them and they don't want to have like some millionaire with a bunch of dollars, you know, banging on their door, making their life miserable. And I understand that. So, but I also want to just like set something straight and I'm going to say this, this is what I'm hearing. If this is wrong, then I would happily um, accept an email from Robert or anyone over at Deep Root to clarify this statement. So I am not saying this as a statement of fact. I am saying this as something I heard from a Zidware customer about how Deep Root is dealing with them. And I would love for them to either clarify or, or give me a, a correction on this statement. So what, am I, what, am I, what I'm hearing is this. When we keep hearing the phrase, for this company to work, they have to make Zidware customers whole. Now, the word whole means there are no gaps. There are no like inconsistencies. If you gave Zidware a dollar, you would get a dollar back in something of value. Okay. Now, from what I'm hearing is this. DeepRoot is offering Zidware buyers who invested a lot in John's company 50 cents to the dollar, okay? Not, they're not getting made whole. They are being offered 50% of what they invested in J-Pop. So if you gave John Papaduke $100,000 and you bought you know, 10 Razas and, and spent $10,000 on each of them, this company is offering you $50,000 in credit towards um, new machines or Razas with DeepRoot. Okay, so that's, that's not whole, it's better than nothing. That's the other side of the argument is, isn't it better to get something versus nothing? And if you root against them, then you'll get absolutely nothing. So maybe you should take something. You see, it's, it's not an easy place to be in. And this is the problem with John Papaduke. And this is the problem with giving John Papaduke another chance. You know, people just don't understand that John Papaduke will be the anchor that sinks the ship of any new pinball venture because he carries with him all the bad baggage from the Zidware days. And you just can't forget it and move on because there are hardworking men and women out there who gave this man money who who had faith in him and he knew when he couldn't finish magic girl he moved on to two more titles and took money on those titles and then delivered nothing to those people he also paid himself a nice $75,000 a year salary he also like paid 
all these other people to, to make stuff for him and then deliver nothing. He also took a lot of stuff from people and never paid them. And so, you know, Deep Root saying, oh, they paid off the coder apple juice. Now we're good, right? That's, that's not the case. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to go write a check for apple juice for $10,000 and then think you have goodwill now with all the people John burned. And, and, and that's the problem with J-pop. You know, you're going to start a company with four designers and one of which has been like the, a, a toxic member of the pinball community. And it's, it's just not right. It's just not right. And I think part of that just shows what these guys do want to be like the bad boys of pinball that are going to prove everybody wrong. But again, I think the J-pop rabbit hole goes much further than people realize. They don't realize how much money Davo pumped into John and believed in John and got burned by John. And now Deep Root is trying to just take all the stuff that John worked on with Davil and American Pinball and just you just don't get that for free. I love when he said like he's exercising an option to take it all for $99. And meanwhile, Davil probably spent a few hundred thousand dollars and believed John. And I can't wait till they actually sit in a room and try to deconstruct Magic Girl and figure the whole thing out. I can't wait until John shows him what was actually done on Raza and, and how Alice in Wonderland, all it really is is foam core with Zombie Yeti's incredible artwork on it. I mean, think about it. Before the man even had a flipping white wood, he already laid down the playfield artwork. Just think about that for a minute. The complete opposite of how you make pinball machines. And so, look, 2018... And 2018 is going to be a year where I, I, I really do. I, I, I think it's, it's like when you mine for gold. The companies that are great, they're going to get caught in the pan. All the companies that are just BSing us and floundering, they're going to get washed away. There's just no room in this market anymore for all the, these, these companies who are just like trying to make it up as they go along. And I, I really, I just don't have much faith in, in, in Deep Root and, and all that stuff that they're saying they're going to do by next year. I think your faith should be in, in Spooky and in Stern and in, you know, Highway, sorry, you know, Highway, I hope, Spooky, Stern, JJP, Chicago Gaming, those guys got it together. Highway Pinball, they've got 2018 to prove us wrong that they can do it, as does Dutch Pinball. You know, I believe that if Dutch Pinball and Highway Pinball can actually figure their shit out, there are people who want to buy those games, all right? You know, P3, Multimorphic, Circus Maximus with their new Kingpin, all that stuff. You know, they're going to have to work twice as hard to get buyers for these machines because they haven't shown that they can really produce games at volume. The same is true of American Pinball. I think Houdini is phenomenal, and I'm hearing phenomenal things about this game from people, right? People that I trust who have played the game, the new game, are saying nothing but positive things. But the only concern is can American Pinball, can they produce the game and manufacture it fast enough to meet demand while the demand is there? And I'll say this, this is the year where the window is wide open for a boutique company like American Pinball to be successful because I don't think the titles coming from Stern or Jersey Jack are really going to be like the juggernaut themes of the past or the licenses of the past. So the door is open for Spooky possibly to blow it out of the park with Alice Cooper. The door is open for P3 to show us what it's really about. The door is open for Houdini. This is the year for those companies to strike um, and let's see what they can do. 
All right, it's going to be an interesting battle this year. I don't think the big companies pick the right licenses this year at all. I think they're not going to emotionally grip people the way they think they are. Um, so the door is open. Again, all this is just my opinion. We'll see how it goes. Uh, let's air the interview with Dave Sanders. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank, thank you to all of you who voted for me on the controversial Twippy win that I got. And again, thank you to all the other podcasts out there for delivering great content to pinball fans. We, I appreciate it, and I know everyone else does as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Highway Pinball's lead designer, Dave Sanders. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to Canada's Pinball Podcast. This, this is like an amazing guest because Dave has been a listener of the show, and he reached out to me, and, he, and he's been wanting to come on for a while. And it's no other than Dave Sanders, lead designer at Highway Pinball. And Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time on this Sunday afternoon for you to join the show. Well, it just seemed like after the Twippy seemed like the the best time to do it. I mean, there was a there was a particular focus there that uh, that we could work on. You know, like what could we take away from the Twippies? Because we, you and I, were both on the uh, chat right. during the tw- uh, Twippy Awards, and what struck me was when the finalists were being read out uh, for each category was just how much. Our choices overlapped. I mean, we both picked ones that were right. We both picked wrongs, ones that were wrong. But we tended to both pick the same ones, and we tended to pick them for the same reason. Right. So I thought. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, and I thought that I thought as well there was a, a lot that we could sort of like analyze and take away from this. In right. Terms of, um, where I where, where things stand with the industry because I mean you always have a lot to say about the industry and there have been episodes where I've felt a little bit you know disheartened obviously by whatever opinions you had or um, certain topics that uh, you, you, know, you were getting onto but at the end of the day I mean it's it's free advice from a guy who's in marketing, and you don't get that in a box of cracker jacks. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And, and what we want to do, Dave, on this episode is, and, and we were discussing this, is we're sort of going to break it out into two parts. Um, we definitely want to talk about Dave's experiences working in Highway. And, and just for listeners of the show, this is not going to turn into a, a bashing Andrew Highway sort of podcast. We're, we're going to just talk about the sort of how Dave sort of got involved with Highway, you know, and discuss the past of the company a little bit, where the company currently is, sort of where we see Highway going. And then, as, as Dave was mentioning, a lot of interesting results from the Twippies and the implications, I think, those results have for the industry as we move forward. So, so Dave, how does it sound if we sort of tackle it that way? Yeah. Um, right. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just going to be me. I'm not here to bash Andrew. I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm not here to show for the present company. That's not what I'm here for. So for the three people who haven't switched over to head-to-head pinball yet, two of which are us, let's get on with it. <laughs> We've got more listeners than that, uh, but I do love Ryan's Yeah, show. but Yeah, but I'm your guest, okay? Yeah. You'll be <laughs> for me in five years. Right, right. All right, well, what I wanted to do is like, you know... The, Obviously, we've been covering Highway Pinball for many years, and there's, you know, you've been sort of, you you were involved with the company right from the beginning, correct? Yes. So how did that, how did that happen? So walk me through sort of, sort of 
joining a company who was going to build a pinball machine? Like, how did they find you? Like, what, what, what got you through the door? What got me through the door was my work in the design, the visual design field, primarily through um, visual pinball. Because at that point, I would have been, um, I was active with the VP scene since the very early days, since 2001, when it was still in beta three. Um, and I was among the first people who started uh, jumping on saying, hang on, there's all these tables here, all those tables that are out there, all our favorites from so many years ago. And we have this tool now, which has never been seen before. We can actually um, replicate those tables. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was this was raw VP. This was before um, VPN came along. I think this was even before the the, the whole pin name side came about. Um, so the amount of raw creativity that was there in those first couple of years was incredible. Um, but also not just the creativity, the passion, but also the learning experience because. One thing that VP taught me, or rather researching to use VP, is it was the, uh, the, the early days of the Internet Pinball database as well. And that was a, that was a, a wealth of resource. Um, this, since this was uh, way back in dial-up, of course, you couldn't make a game that was more than about four or eight megabytes in size. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, people would start complaining at that in download speed. So, of course, the um, you basically worked with whatever you could get. And that basically meant flyers, flyer images from flyers. Um, oh, I can't remember the site that flyers.dm i think it was they're still around there's, there's, right. there's still some very useful and also whatever stuff was on the uh ipdb which was still even at that point i think was still pretty pretty substantial but it was but it was, it was like if if you had any inclination to to pinball at all this was um this was a gold mine and suddenly right. i found i found myself looking at this and saying you know what I can fucking do this. And um, I started um, uh, with all the stuff that I had to hand. Essentially, I was able to learn from the masters and how they did it. Um, But of course, there's a there's a there's a huge difference between um, being able to look at geometry above the play field and analyzing what's below a play field and what makes that work and being able to reconcile the two um because i don't have an engineering background right um i am much more creative in terms of well partly with concepts but also with structure structure and geometry and being able to squeeze space I think. I mean, that's that, that's that's where that's where I tend to shine. So I, I work as part of a team. I okay. Mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I, I'm not a sort of one man band. Definitely not. I, I have to have. Uh, I have to have a team. Okay. So Dave, so you're 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 designing games in the virtual pinball space, and then you get the opportunity 
to physically make a game. And Full Throttle was the first game that you designed, correct? Is that correct in terms of like a physical pinball machine? In terms of the physical pinball machine, yeah, that was the very first one. Yes. And what was that? What was that like? That transition from working in a digital space to a physical space. Well. Obviously, there was a lot more research involved. And one thing that Andrew, this is when Andrew was living back in Ireland. I mean, he reached out to me through the UK Pimble News Groups because he, he'd found my um, original designs on uh, visual pinball and thought, yeah, we might be able to, to um, do something with this if we can uh, uh, plan out a machine uh, properly. And and he had ideas in mind. I had ideas in mind. Um, Cersei's Animal House, as it became then, was actually one of the last last ideas that came about because everything else was either very complex or it would have needed um, a license which we would have had no means of actually getting at, uh, at that point because... We were just starting from the ground up. I mean, we had no idea uh, exactly how long it would take as the R&D side of things to uh, um, really get things going. I mean, we both we both underestimated that. Right. But um, also when he first reached out to me, I was not at a, I was not at a good point in my life. Um, I was having various forms of um, anxiety and depression troubles and various other related things that I've never quite been able to get over. I mean, you've... I'd be very much a recluse in the community because, I mean, I'm... I'm on the uh, autistic spectrum a bit, and uh, so that so so I tend to focus on the sort of like the here and now and, and, and what I'm doing. So I mean, you, you sure. give me a project and and I'll focus on it. But uh, I haven't been in a in, in a position, and I need to try to rectify this where I can sort of like interact with the community oh. more. But uh, oh, yeah. It, 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 I mean, the pinball community, right? I mean, it, it's a very vocal community, right? And people are constantly... Oh, no, off. <laughs> it's probably one of the most vocal communities in, in the world, right? I mean, everyone's back and forth with each other. They want transparency. Um, so it sounds like, you know, you, you sort of keep a little to yourself and, you know, you're, you're focused on, on the pinball work. So talk to me about, so Full Throttle, when you guys decided to make that title. And I think for listeners of the show, too, I think what people don't realize about getting a license, it's not just about money, right? It's the company that is going to license the property to you wants to see that you have the capability to manufacture a machine. So that's why it's easy for a company like Stern that has decades of machines under their belt to to go get some of these licenses. So you guys decided to make full throttle. Um, how, How did that process go? Was it you say you underestimated how long it would actually take to manufacture a game. Like what, what? What was the initial sort of timeline that you guys had in your heads that you thought you'd be able to accomplish with that? I think the initial timeline was one year from the day we arrived in Wales. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I think, yeah, Christmas 2012 was what Andrew would have uh, liked initially. What was the, Talk to me about Alien. So when you inherited Dennis's design, what was that like? Would it have been easier to start from scratch, or was it nice to have like him sort of lay the groundwork? Laying the groundwork for that game was... Um, I don't think I could have uh, we could I could have done it half as well if uh, at that point if I hadn't have had some groundwork to actually go on because Alien was always going to be Andrew's theme. Uh, it was it was never going to be uh, mine. I mean, Full Throttle wasn't mine either. Um, it just kind of became that uh, came uh, became that way after the, the feedback that we were getting was we had created. Not just a fast game, but a fast, uh, wide body. Um, so people, uh, people were saying, well, what you really need to do is uh, put on a theme that has, um, that's about speed. Okay. And Andrew, uh, when he was younger, um, he, actually, um, uh, he actually raced cars. So, um, I mean, he's, he's still a bit of a boy racer even now, but that was his, that was one of his big passions was, um, was cars and racing. So of course he, he jumped at the chance to, to do something like that. I mean, I had absolutely no interest in that sort of thing myself, but he said that, well, if we do it with bikes, that's at least something a little bit different. And I went, yeah, all right, well, um, okay. I mean, Full throttle. The difference between full throttle and alien, as far as designs go. I mean, let's not. I mean, I'm not talking about themes. I'm talking about raw design. Right. With full throttle, the way I approached the design for that game um, was okay. This is obviously going to be the game with the most limited budget that we would ever do. So. There are certain limitations that we have straight off the bat. We only have um, two flippers um, and your standard pop bumpers, slingshots, whatever. Uh, it's a case of what can I do with this that isn't going to be your traditional fan shot layout? I mean, what's, mm -hmm. uh, what can I do that's um, different from this? And uh, John Popperduke... I think this might have been a little later, but it's 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 certainly pertinent. I mean, this is before uh, the whole um, Magic Girl stuff. John Popper, you did actually give me a little bit of advice at one point. It's like the 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 shot geometry from the flippers. You have your flippers in the in the um, standard places. The angles that you can shoot from the from those flippers never change. What you can change is the places where the ball from those flippers isn't going to go on its own. That means the in lanes and the out lanes, and in particular with, with, uh, with a wide body. You've got that much space on the bottom left and the bottom right that normally you can't shoot at. And you've got to find some way of um, filling that space. So those are the places where you, where you can go basically nuts and um, give the player something new there. I mean, this is, that's certainly the ethos that uh, Jersey Jack took to heart with Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were all over that with the the, the, the bumper in the uh, left outlane. I mean, 
I don't think that had ever been seen before. Oh uh, yeah, the 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 Toto the balloon bundler, yes. Yeah, the this yep. Um, yeah. Okay, so but what I saw with the what I saw with full throttle that I could do was having done my research research on the two flipper games is um, I had seen plenty of games with a third flipper and a loop shot. I mean, it's, uh, it's a loop back to the flipper. It's a very standard thing on uh, your, uh, your typical three flipper game. And one thing I had never seen, though, or at least I had not seen any examples of this in the games that I'd looked up. I had never seen a two flipper game that had done the same thing. Um, a shot where from the bottom flipper, you could shoot the ball into the loop and that loop would carry the ball back to the same flipper at the bottom instead of... Uh, a, sh uh, a shot from a flipper up at the side. So I thought, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. Um, build the loop shot as the shot of the game, which it turned out to be because everybody loves that shot. And then everything else, that's going to be the central thing that the rest of the design builds up around. So um, it's a case of that was the um, starting point uh, for um, the full throttle design. And the starting point with uh, Alien, obviously, was was what uh, um, Dennis had actually done, because that having that meant I had some um, focus to work with. Um, it meant I could look at that and I could see, OK, um, what ideas on this do I think are going to work? What ideas uh, do I think um need uh to be revised how can i sort of like tweak the geometry and do everything so it works as, as as well as possible and also it's a case of well what does andrew want with this game because uh andrew as far as the game concept went andrew was very much the uh driving force behind alien so uh it's a case of um what I would do differently, I think, with uh, Alien now, if uh, if I was coming to, to uh, Alien again, I mean, I would still create the um, same game, I think. But um, one of the uh, one of the mistakes that we did in those early years, as far as uh, it was a case of uh, Try to save as much money uh, on the short term in the short term as we could. Um, what that ultimately meant was we'd end up spending that money anyway in the uh, in the, the in the longer term. And unfortunately, that uh, that that crept into the alien design as well because I was I was thinking once we had the um, Xenohead, once I knew that there was going to be a big central toy, mm -hmm. I was thinking, well, how do I save money elsewhere? Uh, what's going to look good that can be done for cheap, um, but is still going to be effective. So that's how things like the platforms came about. But what I hadn't considered that was it's not just about money. It's also about things like um, how easy it is to uh, construct um, from a manufacturing basis on an assembly line. So when I when I did the platforms, oh, it took ages to get those platforms right to a point where somebody could come along and act and with just the minimum of instructions say, OK, put this together, put this together, put this together and all these bits. It's so one thing I would I would I would definitely do 
would be if it were doing doing that again is I would I would stand behind myself with a roll up, rolled up newspaper and smack myself whenever I think I'm getting too clever for my own good. Right. So I guess what you're saying, Dave, is like a lot of times when you're designing something, the reality of manufacturing it, if it's really complex and difficult, makes makes it more expensive, right? Because all those hours that have to go into figuring out how to making this work on a production level sort of eats away at, at the bottom line and actually what actually what eats away at the bottom at the bottom line is the time on the assembly line right because you're still having to pay people by the hour and you're trying to get machines a certain number of machines out every day you're not just trying to get the bill of materials down you're also trying to get the build time down well let's let's talk about now because i think you know the past is the past and i think if you were to do anything differently dave is there anything like from that error that you're like if we had just made it a little bit easier on ourselves we probably could have got to the finish line faster well we overstretched ourselves really badly in those first few years um trying to bite off more than we could chew um frankly uh it's interesting that uh we're talking about this on the episode after you were talking about the uh the deep root thing but yeah, we we definitely overextended ourselves and overestimated what um, was practical. How much was practical that we could we could actually do? Um, and the 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 other thing I would uh, certainly do is uh, I wouldn't we uh, wouldn't announce stuff until we were ready right. to. Um, that was again. That was that was a a, a huge. A huge mistake, not just from the fact what you're saying about um, the the whole (coughs) the half life of hype and how quickly that can like dissipate by the time you get to the finished product, especially if it takes longer than you expect. Then the buzz has already moved on to something else. There is also uh, the fact that if you say, "Okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this," you've tied yourself down to a promise. And uh, unfortunately, Andrew did have a marked tendency to promise things that we then had to scramble and fall over ourselves to to try and keep um, both uh, both in terms of uh, marketing and uh, and games, but also in terms of physical things on the the actual game as well. So that's definitely something that uh, we absolutely would not do. Well, and, and Dave, and Dave too. To that point, the industry's changed a lot too because you know a few years a few years ago, right? You could you could simply announce stuff without physically having it yet, and people would pay money. I mean, the pre order model uh, has gone from being like the way boutiques introduce themselves to the world, and I think nowadays. If you're asking for pre-order dollars, I think people would be very reluctant to to give money before a final machine was finished. But no argument right. there. <laughs> well, we'll see, right? Because who knows what's going on in some other places. Um, well, Dave, let's, let's talk about the present. So, the Andrew's no longer with the organization. The new invest, the not the well, the old investors have come in and put in new capital. What's the mood like nowadays at Highway? Is it has it improved? It's improved, yeah. At the moment, it's a case of, well, we've, uh, before, the top priority is to uh, get Alien 
as good as it can possibly be and out the door. That's that's all encompassing at the moment. That is that is the number one priority. So we've got to um, we've got to get Alien um, out the door. We've got to get it as good as we can possibly get it. We've got to um, erase all traces of um, whatever, of of the various shortcuts and whatever that was uh, done on it before, the the, the things that were unpolished. This will actually lead into some of the stuff that we will talk about with the twins as well. Um, But we've we've got to get Alien out the door. But at the same time, you've got a company, you've got a manufacturing company with a dedicated design department. That design department also costs money, and they're not just going to be sitting on their asses. And in, in terms of Game 3 too, Dave, so I know there's, you know, we don't know for sure what the, the theme or the license is. I know there's rumors of Queen and whatnot, and we don't have to go into that because I know that's, um, a, a secret, but will you be designing Game Three? Because I know Barry O worked on a few designs for Andrew. How? how walk me through like who's got the design helm now? I mean, now we see Barry's over at Deep Root, so I'm curious as to like who who's leading design. Who's leading design on Game Three? It's myself. Um, building on uh, what Barry uh, gave okay. me, but there's there's a lot more of Barry in game three than there is Dennis in game two. Um, I'm not, uh, certainly not throwing out the baby with the bathwater just because uh, Barry's no longer here um, to work on it. Um, it's at a, uh, it's at a fairly advanced conceptual stage and geometric stage. And as far as the licenses go, they're, they're they're happy with the uh, direction that we're taking, okay. but so so we we have a focus. We know where we're going to go with that. Uh, we we have a more concrete structure in uh, in place for getting from A to B with this game that we kind of lacked with um, previous games because. Um, we're, what we're definitely not doing with game three is is, is trying to make anything up as we, uh, as we go along. It's a case of uh, get things to a stage where it's like, okay, this is nailed down. We move on to right. the next bit. Also, there was a lot to learn, a lot to apply to game three. There was stuff that really worked with Full Throttle. There was stuff that really worked with Alien. It's a case of taking the best bits that work from both of uh, avoiding the stuff that um, didn't work and applying it to this game, uh, making it making it shoot well, making it fun, making it look as good as possible, trying to bring across something that's um, fresh, but at the same time is easy to build. Basically, I'm, I'm applying to game three everything that I learned from the uh, the first two games. And since we have, since we have a lot more um, devices and proprietary tech and other components to work with now, it means things can uh, speed up a bit on that front as well. Okay. Has Dave has the as part of the design team, and I think part of Andrew's initial design philosophy was the the modular swappable game system. Is that something that you guys are going to continue or are you going to move away from that sort of approach where we're trying to sell people 
play fields to pop in and out? Are we going to go more towards traditional style cabinets or is it, what, what's the, what's the future look like? I'm not sure if I can answer that question. Um, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I think unfortunately that's straying into NDA territory. I don't think I can answer that question. Absolutely understand. Um, Right. And it makes yes. I mean, it makes sense not to move on to game three. So we're not going to hear about game three at TPF. I think as a marketer, I think that's a smart move. I think a lot of times, you know, companies, if they come into some sort of trouble, sometimes the, the, the desire is to quickly announce something else to deflect the issues. It's almost like when Big Lebowski, when Dutch announced that they were going to do that bride of Pinbot for 12,500 and everyone's like, well, where's my Big Lebowski? So I think it's smart to... Yeah, we we did that as well. Um, if you remember, uh, back in 2014, um, Andrew announced Alien very early on, before Full Throttle was even out, because um, he felt... He felt he needed the um, uh, uh, pre-order money. I mean, that's... Uh, he's he certainly said since that uh, that's that's something that he, he never he, he'd never do again. I mean, uh, to be honest, I haven't actually spoken to Andrew in some time, so certainly not since Christmas. So I'm not really sure what Andrew is uh, is doing, but I do know that um, he's 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 taken away sort of uh, quite a bit from uh, this as well in in terms of learning from what worked and learning from what didn't. But yeah, we would. Uh, Alien was announced at a point before Full Throttle was fully ready and effectively stopped right. it. Well, like I think, you know, and and then we'll move, let's move on to the trippies after this, but I think it's, you know, it's just, it's been a real learning experience for so many people making pinball. It's not just highway pinball. I mean, I think we saw the entire industry, oh, yeah. they saw that there was a lot of money out there. A lot of people were really enthusiastic about buying new pinball machines. I mean, people were throwing $16,000 at John Papaduke without even a game. It was a period where it seemed like... Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, you've got to, if you could put, to put John Papaduke into context with this, he was, I think, the original booty guy. He um, he came along with Magic Girl and he said specifically, OK, there's nobody else doing pinball like this. I'm only going to be making what I think it was twenty five and, 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 and I'm going to I'm going to charge this amount for them. I mean, in terms of what was happening in the industry at the time, John was the one who came along and sh- uh, shook things up and opened people's eyes to the fact that, hang on. Uh, maybe we could do this as well. Uh, maybe do this in a, a slightly different way. I mean, whatever you thought of. I, I think the price for Magic Girl at that point was immaterial simply because uh, there was nothing else being pitched like it at the time. I mean, yeah, we've seen Batman Ellie come out uh, in in more or less the same circumstances, really. I mean, there were only supposed to be how many of Batman's Yeah, there were supposed LEs? to be 30 originally, and then Stern saw the demand and bumped it up to 80. And and even on the, even those 80, they sold out, like, instantly. Um, how did you get I, So Cointaker had one in box, because Chris got one over there at Cointaker, and he just never opened it. And I I bought it off. <laughs> you know, his, he, 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 you know what, but... but 
but Dave, to your point, and I think what was interesting about what John showed, and I've said this before, for all of John Papaduke's faults, he understood the market. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people with a lot of money in this hobby because you need a lot of money if you're going to start buying you know, $9,000, $10,000 toys that are non-essentials for life. And, and there are multimillionaires in this hobby who really want something exclusive and, except, and something limited. Now, what's interesting is even though Zidware failed to deliver on that, nobody has really moved into that part of the market, which is very low number, high price games that are limited. Well, I would, I would just, I would argue that Stan has. Well, they've tried, right? And, and they were successful with Batman SLE to a point, but I think what Stern has realized is the games themselves probably don't warrant that kind of price tag. Because think about it like this. If, if I have a $15,000 Batman SLE, I, I think it's a cool machine. But someone is playing the same exact game as mine for $8,000 with, with the premium. And it's... That's, yes, th- but that's getting into... That's getting into slightly different territory. Uh, I mean, the, the point with Magic Girl was there was only supposed to be one edition. Exactly. And that was exactly. It. And what, but what made what what in my mind what made Magic Girl worthy of the price if he had delivered is I would I would sell it like this to actually play a Magic Girl. There are thousands of pinball fans out there in the world. You would have to be standing in front of one of only sixteen machines. That's special. But he never could get yes. it done. So let's talk about Deep Root and let's go into the Twippies because like, now that we're talking about John, you know, Deep Root came onto the scene recently and, and as we were just saying, Dave, you know, don't announce stuff too early. Don't reveal your cards too early. Don't share your intentions too early. Well, they've shared a lot, right, in their, in their interview last week and they have half of the design team from Highway. They've got Dennis over there, Barry over there. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts, just as a pinball fan, when you when you saw what they announced? I can't answer that as a pinball fan because I'm too close to it. Um, But I'll tell you what I did think of it. I saw that as an immediate statement of intent. uh, With that photograph that had had, uh, Dennis there, as you said, that had Barry there, that had David Thiel there, that's uh, David Thiel's previous game being the one that he did for us. And that was effectively... David Thielis especially was the the greatest asset that we had on Alien. A lot of the success um, as a game is down to David Thiel. Uh, everybody acknowledges it. And um, so now here they all are uh, at Deep Root and they're showing them off. What what Deep Root, I, what I see Deep Root doing with this is basically they're saying, we've got deep pockets and we're going to wreck your shit and we're starting with you right yeah i mean it was it, it definitely felt like i feel like they were trying to be like death row records where they've got snoop we've got tupac we've got dr dre we're, we're gonna we're gonna take over i mean but it's it's a little strange right and i've always wondered the loyalty in this industry what how people jump around so much and i, I understand david does work for everybody because he's a sound guy and he goes wherever the you know people are paying him i understand that but do you feel like were you were you upset at all to see that you know two designers that had been designing for you guys ending up there, or is it just the nature of the business that whoever's going to pay me? It's the nature of the business, I think. 
actually, um, that wasn't one. Uh, that wasn't the first and second. That was the second and third. What uh, what you probably what most people probably don't remember is that uh, in the very early days we had John Trudeau um, on board uh, in the very early days in 2012, and he was going to design the right. game for us when the time was right, and Stern poached him away from us. This is very indicative of how cutthroat, really cutthroat, the. Um, the industry is because you've said in a couple of episodes, I think, that uh, you, you claim that um, people overestimate the amount of money that there is in the market and in the hobby. Well, no, no, they don't. The big players certainly uh, um, certainly don't. I mean, the, 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 the stories that you hear of um, licenses being bought up. Um, so that other people can't have them. Um, I'm pretty sure that goes on. Well, absolutely, um, absolutely. Stern is <laughs> locking down titles that, I mean, I know for a fact that Spooky Pinball's dream theme to make was going to be Munsters, and, you know, Stern doesn't need Munsters. Spooky's got a pinball company that's all, a, I mean, they're called Spooky, for God's sake. They want to make those sort of, like, fun, campy, sort of horror kind of inspired themes, and, you know, Stern probably locked that down just to screw over Spooky. Well, when you also consider it like this, um, a licensing deal involves, to a, large, a significant degree, royalties. You're paying so much, as, as well as a cash package to get that particular license, you're also going to be paying X amount per machine. Well, if you don't make the machine, you don't pay the X amount for it. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. It, it, Stern are obviously weighing up, well, it's going to cost us this amount, base amount, to get this license. Is it going to be worth it just so that nobody else can have it? Right. For a company like uh, Stern, um, it's it's probably not much of a conundrum. But um, uh, they've got this big share of the market. They've got the distribution network, and by Christ, they're going to do anything to hang on oh, to yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and Dave, when Deep Root made their announcement and they said they're going to design a game without White Woods, as a designer, is that even possible? To, like, to never have a White Woods stage of a game? <laughs> I wouldn't try it. We can, um we we did so much on the fly in the early years that uh, I would not recommend any anybody anybody try to make anything especially especially anything as complex as as pinball without building at least two white woods you want at least two white woods right. first. The, the first to try out the um, initial shots and the second to refine it. And ideally, a second white wood would be uh, your final one. It, it, was, it was incredible to hear the, the level of confidence and almost like swagger that they were, you know, in Robert's interview about their ability to make pinball when they haven't ever made a single game. And so I think a lot of people are looking at it like, here we go. It's, yeah, it's, you can understand why I paid that so much attention. Right. Well, it's like history repeating itself. And I think, you know, 
it's a shame because it doesn't have to. I think there's so many good lessons to have been learned in this hobby over the last five years. Some have been painful lessons. Some have been good lessons. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think we all want to see pinball get to a much more positive place where all the drama surrounding companies and games and pins sort of dissipates and we can focus on the good sides of the hobby. And I think the twippies, let's, let's move on to some of that stuff because I want to go through um, some of the stuff you were raising in the email to me, Dave, around the twippies. So I want to read out some of these mm. topics and let's, let's just dive in. How's that sound? All right. Yeah, so well. you said the community is less conservative, not politically, but how they see the market than the industry is, especially when you look at the figures within both. Yeah. You got to remember, you keep pointing this out. This is a toys for boys market. Okay. And it's pitched as such. Okay. The, you've got, uh, as you say, there's always going to be a certain amount of risk in um, buying a product, a toy, that's gonna be gonna cost anywhere up to uh, nine thousand pounds, and I describe a pinball machine. It's it's like a Fisher Price toy for adults. That's basically what it is. You press this, you press this thing, you hit this thing, and this thing lights up, and this thing goes bing, and it's the same kind of cause and effect. Or, or it's like the way people, uh, other people tinker with cars. It's it's pretty much the same kind of principle. But yeah. You know that there's going to be a certain amount of uh, risk involved in trying to sell somebody a nine thousand uh, dollar product. So, and especially um, if the figures that you have designing that product are your old hands and they know what works for them, um, you're you're going to minimise that risk and you're going to let those figures do what they do. Um, but what the community has shown with dialed in and especially with total nuclear annihilation, because that was the golden mm -hmm. boy. Um, it's like Scott Denise could do no wrong. Um, people want something that feels fresh and new. I mean, we're, we're seeing that. Uh, people want something that uh, just offers something just, just that little bit different, even if it's not um, as super complex, super deep. Uh, I mean, a lot of people just don't like deep games anyway. But some people think games are too complex. They're, they're, they're too hard to get into, right. um, a, lot, a lot of the modern stuff. So Total Nuclear Annihilation offered people something that wasn't there and that they didn't necessarily know they wanted until it was given to them. Uh, the other thing that Total Nuclear Annihilation did... Um, First impressions are really, really important. And people saw how Total Nuclear Annihilation developed um, on the Pinside forums just as its own sort of homebrew project. Right. So before that got to the point where that was a, um, a product for sale, where the first impression would matter, well, People already had the impression of that game. They knew how it was going to shoot. They knew how it was going to look, how it was going to sound. They already knew they wanted it. So that was effectively the first impression that it gave when uh, Spooky picked it up. Now, if you compare that with um, Dialed In, 
for example, um, dialed in. Oh, dialed in made the same mistake that we did when we first uh, tried to do Cersei's Animal Alehouse, because your pitch, your pitch is vital. Mm-hmm. If you get that pitch wrong, just people aren't really going to get it. Okay, I think with a pitch. If you're, if you're pitching to somebody who's going to buy your game, you've got to think of it like um, like a new player who's going to walk up to your machine and they've never seen it before, okay? And what you've got, you've got a machine in a bar, somebody comes up to it, the first thing they're going to see is the translite and the name. That has got to convey what your game is. Right. Um, the, the, the basic idea of the game has got to be summed up in your translate and your name. This is what the um, Bally Williams games were so good at doing in the 90s. Um, with a license, obviously, uh, your pitch is right there. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. So you, um, so you can see why um, just on that basis alone licenses have that kind of appeal but um right so there's a lot of discussion when dialed in launched right from a marketing standpoint why is like i don't immediately get what this game is about is it about a cell phone is it about saving quantum city should it just be called save quantum you know saving quantum city or you know whatever it didn't have that immediate sort of understanding and and to your point dave it would be hard to explain to someone pretty quickly what the game's about. And I think Jack had the comic, he had like a comic book that was trying to explain it, but you shouldn't really need an additional, you know, additional materials to be able to explain the backstory of a pinball machine because it should be pretty immediate. And and I think Jack yeah, learned the you lesson. You should be able to sum it yeah. up. You should be able to sum it up in kind of like a one line high concept right. pitch. I mean, I think, I think the definitive example of this is Monster Bash. Because Monster Bash is a licensed theme, but if you didn't know the history of the Universal Monsters or whatever, or if you didn't notice the Universal logo that was on the game, you'd swear that game was an original. Right. It, and, it's, and it was pitched like an original. I mean, the, the, you've got the translate, you've got the name, and you've got the one, like, one, one um, sentence pitch right. that that translate conveys, which is... There are monsters, and they reform a band. Attack from Mars, right? Medieval madness. It's there in the name. Goofy goofy aliens invade Earth. Goofy forces have to repel them. (laughs) Right. Right. That's so... Again, getting back to uh, Cersei's Animal Alehouse, the way we should have pitched that was... um, um, Comedy... uh, Magical bar where people turn in an- animals. Everybody has fun. Right. This is your hostess. That should have been it. Instead of getting so sort of like hung up on the uh, mythology and whatever and overcomplicating things behind it, you've got to give people the pertinent information and the minimum information. Like I said, like I said, with with, with new players, you've got the back glass and you've got the name. That's got to attract people. And then you've got your play field, and right. that's got to hold them there. And that's all you've got. So what Jersey Jack did, they kind of did it from... They kind of came at this... Uh, the, 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 arrived at the same problem, but from the opposite thing. They... What I seem to remember them doing, this was clearly the game that um, Pat Lawler wanted to make 
when he was part of the first initial Kickstarter that the Pro Pinball guys did when they had him on board. Um, I'm fairly sure that this is the game that he would have made then. Um, but uh, when he came on board, uh, Jersey Jack, uh, and they first started uh, to announce the game, they were... Correct me if I'm wrong, but first and foremost, they were advertising that. They were promoting that as a Pat Lawler. Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. So it's like, look, look, new Pat Lawler game. It's awesome. Look, look, it's Pat Lawler. He's back. It's awesome. Look, look at this play field. Look at it. Look at it. Okay, what's the game about? Uh, yep. Uh, it's, 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 it's got a cell phone on it. Right, right. Well, I think the I, look. I, I've said this before, and, and I respect Jack and everyone over there. I, I think the mistake is, and I I agree with you. Is is Pat just this is Pat's magic girl? This is the game he wanted to make for over five years. He almost got a blank check to make the game he wanted, but at the end, and look, dialed in. It, it cleaned up at the Twippies for the most part, right, Dave? I mean, it won the most awards. It's a great pinball game wrapped in a theme that will will never come close to selling as many games as Star Wars or Ghostbusters. And that's why I was like... Yeah, but um, uh, I suppose you've got to ask yourself, who is it really aimed at? Um, Star Wars is another example of the same... Th uh, another thing that I was going to come to with this is Star Wars by Steve Ritchie and... Dialed in by Jersey Jack, I think both go to demonstrate that the era of using an established designer's name, no matter who it is, to sell sell a pinball machine, I think that's right. over. I don't think you can really do that anymore. That's why that's why I looked at that deep root thing and I, and I said, well. Um, I mean, yeah, I wish Barry every success. I really hope he gets to do what he wants with. Um, uh, with uh, Deep Root, I hope he gets to, get to, to make the games he really wants to make, but we'll just have to see what happens. But anyway, yeah, using an established designer's name to to, to sell the game. Well, it's it's dead. I think I think, I think you're Wars, right. See, I look at Star Wars. I look at Star Wars, and I could I, I looked at that playfield, and I could tell. Again, maybe I'm wrong, but I could form a basis of how the first design meeting for that game must have gone based on what I already knew about um, how Star Wars Episode One went and how little fun everybody had with that, how overbearing Lucas was with that game. Right. Well, you also, to your point, though... They must have, hang on, no, let's yeah, yeah. just finish this bit. <laughs> they must have sat Steve Ritchie and Dwight Sullivan down in the room and said, OK, we're doing Star Wars. Obviously, nobody's going to be doing Star Wars but you, Steve. Um, Lyman is busy with other codes. We... We we have to use this art. It's what because the they're so rigid with the style guide and what uh, what we can produce. Um, we have this much money to spend. It's going to be all down to you two guys to knock it out the park. I think Steve Ritchie did the best possible job he could have done under those circumstances. I mean, we, when you look at how much 
in terms of a game, in terms of things to actually shoot for, to shoot at, shots to make, targets to shoot, that play field is packed. But they already knew in advance they were not going to be able to integrate the theme as much as they would have wanted to like is, is the impression. Right. I mean, get. I got the same impression from a lot of conversations that the 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 cost of the license was so expensive that the bomb on the game was wasn't what they would have wanted to to really bring that theme to life. But I'll say this though too, Dave, and I think the, an interesting point when you talk about these these old designers, these guys who've been around for decades, I think they're well. I'm trying not to use the word. All right, old. they look kind of old. I mean, they, they look. Experience. I didn't see a bunch of young dudes it's, it's, in that. It's the experience that matters, right? But but here's the thing. I I think in pinball. It's like anything in life, whether you're a musician, whether you're a pinball designer, it is really hard to recapture the creativity and imagination you have when you're young and you're hungry to make a name for yourself. And I think, you know, when people see Scott Denise's game, when they see this stuff Eric worked on over at Jersey Jack for Pirates of the Caribbean, I wouldn't have shown the game so early because now there's nothing to pull the curtain off on when they, when the game goes on sale. But at least there's like a lot of young blood. And, and Dave, I think you fall into that category too. I mean, you're, these are people, new people designing pinball machines who are coming at it from a fresh perspective, who want to become known as a great pinball designer. I think a lot of these older gentlemen who have been doing it for so long, a lot of recycled ideas. And it's hard not to go towards things that are recycled because you know it works and it's part of like your design scheme. Uh, you know, so it's interesting because I, I do agree. I, I don't I, I, I don't think like Pat Lawler equals 5,000 games sold anymore. You know, he sold once sold 20,000 Adams families. But again, it wasn't because it was Pat Lawler's Adams family. I mean, I think I think only recently we've sort of put these designers up on this pedestal now as if they can do no wrong. Uh, but the game just needs to be great. It doesn't I don't think people really care where it comes from. I, I don't. I think they care where, where it comes from if they can if they do get to see the uh, the early genesis of it, like total nuclear annihilation, um, because people people like an underdog that makes good. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a sports movie. You root for the underdog who makes good, and that's Scott Denisi this year. Right. Well, you also said something, too, in your notes. You said the community is very harsh against any game that is unpolished, unfinished, or makes a bad first impression, right? Um, but it's also a very forgiving community if, if you make things right. Yes, that's, um, that's certainly true with Dialed In and the number of awards that it swept up. Once people got to look at the game, once people got to play the game and go, oh, right, now I get it. Sure. And look, I mean, look at look at... Look at Batman 66, right? A year ago in the code, right. I mean, people hated the game. Now you don't... The code was what predicting that, yeah. See, I would argue, too, that... Or not argue. I mean, we're not, we're not in an argument. But I would say that I think the coders are becoming the new rock stars. Because I, I have people who tell me all the time, like, I just won't buy another Stern unless it's Lyman. Yeah, you... That, uh, I would be worried that um, that kind of attitude starts to promote the kind of stasis and the kind of conservatism that we already touched mm-hmm. upon 
with um, the established designers because then you've got your uh, the coders saying, oh, well, they like this. I shall give them more of this. Right. Well, there's always a tug of war, right, with coding between, and you were touching on this earlier, the casual player who would find a lot of games that are too deep and, you know, like 99% of people never get to wizard modes, but yet it's all we hear about on Pinside, right, is like, there's no final wizard mode, I'm not, you know... The reality is, I think the best pinball machines of all time struck the right balance of you immediately can jump on it and have fun, but you also can go go deep into the game if you're a skilled player. And and if you're a tournament player, you're not complaining about the scoring and all that other stuff. No, but of course, the best pinball machines of all time, the uh, the classic '90s ones, were never made for that audience. No. They were only made for the market. The mass market, the collector's market, if you like, is experiencing them now through, in the last 15 years, through places like Visual Pin Name and through um, Farsight Pinball Arcade. And now the common man can pick it up and just, just for a matter of a few bucks and see over time how deep that game was and, and gain the appreciation for right, that. Right. I think I think this is one way, one direction. I think the uh, market should go as well. I mean, this is this is something that I would advocate, particularly in terms of uh, of original themes. If you're wanting to make games with original themes, what I would do is I would make it in digital form first, release it as an app, let people play it, let people get into it, let people like it, let it find its audience. If the audience is there, if the demand is there, then you make it yeah. for real. That's... I think the two markets should complement each other rather than just trying to ride each other's coattails. Right, and, and, as, and as you know, right, I mean, there's, it's really expensive risk to take if you get that wrong and you start with the physical machine. I think, though, with... I think, Bill, with the uh, original IPs, um, this gets back towards the... Uh, the pitch as well because i suppose in a sense you're trying to pitch this to yourself um you've got to create an original theme i think like you were creating a new ip like it has its own story it has its own background it has its own characters but mo most of the point you've said this word as well it's got personality people right now want games that feel fresh and that have a lot of personality to them dialed in fits that bill total nuclear annihilation the personality comes from scott denisi himself and what he was able to do with the game but it's still there uh, so total nuclear annihilation is offering that Batman 66, now that the code is complete, now that it has all those call-outs by Burt Ward and Adam West, the personality is there. That's what people want. Right, and I think, well, we're, we're not even fully complete on Batman. We're, we're, we're only at 0.87, but to your point, I think what makes the game come to life are those call-outs and the fact that the last project that Adam West worked on is him saying pinball lines which is incredible for a pinball fan to experience that and i think you're right i think you know games like medieval madness the personality of games like attack from mars like it should be fun like really really fun exactly. to play a pinball machine right. and it shouldn't feel like corners were cut with 
you know, we couldn't get the voice actors, so we used, you know, this and that. And then it's so Dave. Yeah, well, thank God for Bill Paxton. We got the same we got the same uh, effect. I don't want to put it like this, but it happens to be true. We got the same effect with Bill Paxton, even though they're not custom lines. Alien Pimble was the last thing Bill Paxton was in before he died. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, and that was untimely, you know, and it's, but it's, 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 you know, as I say, these things are become sort of time capsules for these themes. And I, I think it's always an honor for any license to be immortalized in a pinball machine. Um, well, it depends on how it's done. Well, yeah, if it's terrible, then, <laughs> then it's not good. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you taking the hour. As you know, we usually try to do these interviews an hour, but I would love to have you come on as a recurring guest just to talk about pinball too, because I think your knowledge and your point of view on stuff is really interesting and you know obviously we hope that everything with highway can come to a, a good end for everyone who's in on those machines and I, i'm glad to hear that you guys are focusing on, on getting people their machines this year and that is going to be the primary focus um and look i mean that's all we want in pinball is just people to get the games they pay for and to enjoy them and to your point it's it's an expensive fisher price toy that is meant to to bring hours of of enjoyment into the home and onto locations around the world so any any final words dave as as uh, i give you your sunday back um christ <laughs> <laughs> now you put me on the spot <laughs> oh what, God, what, 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 before you go what twippies did you get right and wrong we, we you talked about we, we, oh, we were making yeah. guesses well, well, well we both got we, we both immediately latched onto pin state uh the pin stadium lights when I need to see all the categories again. Um, <laughs> we got the categories here. Let me pull them up. Hold on a second. Yeah, let me pull them up too. Pinball. I got to go past this deep root interview. Here we go. Here we go. Best right. Best animations and display. We both called that for dialed in. Um, I called it for dialed in simply on the basis that it started everything from scratch. It didn't have any pre, um, pre-made assets to work with. It had to do all the work itself. Um, so that's the reason why I picked that right. one. Best light show? Hmm? Best light show. Total nu- nuclear annihilation because the other two were – it was flashes. It was strobe city. <laughs> Favorite new mod, and that was Pin Stadium. Um that was Pin Stadium there because Pin Stadium, you were going for you were going to go for the um, atomic yeah. Well, pile. I didn't realize I didn't but, realize um, Pin Stadium was like brand new, so that's why I didn't. I I definitely think that mod. It's not because Pin Stadium is. It's not because Pin Stadium is brand new. It's because you can adapt Pin Stadium to multiple games, multiple machines. Well, it's a it's a great mod. I mean, I, I think pinball machine lighting is super important for people, especially in the home environment. Uh, it changes the game. It, 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 the more you can see, the better you can shoot. So best theme, I think everyone voted for Star Wars. It, you just can't. Everyone voted for Star Wars for best theme. Yeah, yes. I mean you can't. It's just, but that's like yeah. a silly. Quite, yeah. and Star Wars almost beats anything. Best toys and gimmicks went to. Was it dialed in? Yes, it went to dialed in again because it was something fresh. Right. Favorite pinball YouTube channel, I believe, went to straight down the middle. Best theme yes, integration. I, I was like, I was like, head says Papa, heart says S, uh, SDGM. Well, Papa, like, it's just not, it's not meant to be as entertaining, and it's more about educational. So, I, I also yes, think because 
Greg and Zach were hosting that they had a little bit of an advantage there. Um, best theme integration that that also went to dialed in, right? It did, which I was confused about. Was it you? Was it you who said that if you're doing your own theme, if you're doing an your own IP? So long as you get the theme right, you can't get the yeah, integration exactly. wrong. Yeah, exactly. How do you? How can you mess up an integration of something that isn't even imagined yet in the world? Like, there, it's hard to like be like, oh, you. That's not how it should have been because the theme calls for it to be differently. I mean, it's all original. I guess you could argue that, to your point, Dave. You know, if, by calling it dialed in, is that theme integrated onto the play field? I don't know. I mean, it's all there, but. I could see why it won. I also could argue that that's like a weird thing to win for integration on an original IP. I think it depends on the game. I think uh, I think it kind of overlaps in the case of uh, of an original IP of an original theme. The integration will overlap into the art side, into the toys and gimmick side, into the code side. There's there's going to be everything that makes that theme integration right. work. So best sound and call-outs, that... Yeah, this was an interesting one. This is where you would have... Uh, this is one of the areas where you would have thought that Alien... Because you were pushing for Alien for this originally. You thought, a you thought Alien had a shoe-in for this. And this is where you would have thought Alien might have had um, a, a stab. But in all the Twippies, we were nowhere... And this gets back to what I was saying about the community being unforgiving about things that at the time seem unpolished, right. but we'll, uh, we'll forgive them if, if well, it makes good. I also good. think that best... The Trippies were the perfect example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a mic. Yeah, I mean, people that. voted where, you know, what they felt good about. And, and, and yes. even if a game was like... So I think Batman was an interesting game too because even though Batman's better now people haven't forgiven Stern for raping them for a year. So they like literally like didn't want to vote for it because it it does, it, it, does, it didn't deserve to get an accolade when it's, when it made most of its owners be in pain. But here's the thing. So best. I think, I think the thing, the thing that's actually showing that principle off more is the fact that guardians of the galaxy was literally nowhere except the I, arts. I agree. They, they said, well, we've seen this with Batman. We're not going to see this again. We're not going to let this be seen again until it's I, I completely itself. agree. I, because Guardians of the Galaxy. I think people are really so. down on Guardians for the, 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 the way it was launched. And, and I think people are tired. Yeah, it's the first impression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so best sounding calls, what I think is interesting in that, and, I, and I, I spoke to this, I think those need to be two separate categories because sound is different than the callouts. Because if you were to say best callouts in a pinball machine – I think Batman 66 takes it. Um, I don't think sound and callouts are the same thing. So it's almost like saying best guitar solo and vocals, like, together. And I, I think you can break them up. Now, the favorite pitch streamer was Jack Danger. The best code and rules was dialed in, correct? Uh, I believe dialed in won that. Let's get down there. Uh, best code, yes, dialed in. Uh... Interestingly enough, Batman 66 was virtually nowhere, nowhere to be nowhere. seen. Nowhere. Well, you know, the other, the other uh, thing is, too, is so... Dialed in, Dan, dialed in walked away with this one. Dialed in got 52% of the vote. This is another thing that, str uh, that struck me, okay? Um, 
after the, the, the Twippy Awards and I was thinking about what this means, well, it would be easy to just say, just to, to just shrug it off and say, well, maybe not enough people voted for Alien because there, there hasn't been as many of them in people's homes as we would have liked. But first of all, you would have been the first person to say, well, whose fault's that then? <laughs> and, and second of all, um, both Batman 66, the Super LE, and Total Nuclear Annihilation, neither of those were meant to be high-run games anyway. So the fact that both of those, Total Nuclear Annihilation and Batman 66, coming in a very healthy second and third in the Twippies, that proves that that's nonsense. Right, right. So then we had the best playfield layout and gameplay was also dialed in, which, not surprised. Mm-hmm. Which I guess goes back, yeah, which goes back to the... To the theme integration and giving right. something fresh again. Favorite yeah. pinball podcast. Now, did, did did you vote in the Twippies, Dave? I didn't vote in the Twippies because I felt I I I was too close. I it's anonymous. <laughs> That's not the point. You're allowed I to vote. Know. Next year, I want you to at least vote for the favorite pinball podcast. Which we all know. <laughs> I don't listen to a great deal of podcasts. I mean, that's, there was there's so many podcasts um, listed, and I didn't know. Yeah, there was 21. There were 21 um, podcasts they called out. It's insane. The world doesn't need 21 pinball yeah. podcasts. I there's no. Um, best artwork went to Aerosmith. Yes, which I know. And it was a cl- much closer one. I mean, Aerosmith, Guardians of the Galaxy, Batman 66. It was Stern, one, two, three, and it was between um, Chris Franchi and Dirty Donny. Uh, so, real ding-dong battle there. <laughs> but somebody had to lose, right. and unfortunately... They're, they're all good. They're uh, all talented. Game of the Year obviously went to Dialed In. I mean, it was a very good day for Dialed In. I mean, I think... You know, I... I, I, I think... Everyone looked at the results of these as I, I think they were fair and very honest sort of reflection of, of where the hobby is right now. And I, I know some people are and where the game stood as well. I mean, dialed in was the comeback kid uh, and total nuclear annihilation was the uh, the underdog. Made yeah, good. yeah. Well, it's a, it was a fun award show. And I think I think doing it annually is going to be a really fun thing for the community. And again, I think it's. It's time where I like, think people are just want to put the drama behind and just celebrate pinball because we all love it. So, Dave, I really want to extend a, a thank you for joining. I know it's not easy coming from Highway Pinball to join Canada's Pinball Podcast, but hopefully you enjoy this. I don't put it like that. No, I know. Like, <laughs> we've been harsh on it. And I, I know I want, if you had any... If you have any questions about like why, I mean, look, I've always taken the stance of I need to be on the side of the customers. I need to make sure people's money is protected. And I think it's not just highway. I think a lot of the pre-order model, you know, it, it, it just it just hurt consumers and it took a lot of the life out of the hobby. And I think everyone's wiser now than they were then. And so I hope everything can get back on track for, for people and, and that's it. I just want to see people get their pinball machines. I, I really have no allegiances or bone to, bones to pick anymore with people. I'm, I'm, I've changed my tune. I was a lot more negative a year ago. Um, but I think, you know, life is better when you... When you had negative things affecting you directly. Yeah, when you got to just get... you got to cut it loose. I mean, these are toys. Like, no... Even when I read on Pinside, like, people, like, arguing with each other, on some level, 
step back and realize the inaneness of really personally attacking people because of how they think about a pinball machine. I mean, it's the, too much real stuff going on in the world. So, Dave, thank you so much. And again, I, I, I extend the offer to come back on whenever you know we feel like we have some fun topics to kick back and forth because I do. I, I, I really appreciate your point of view on stuff. Hmm. Well, it might be a while. We'll just have to see how things yeah. go. Yeah. You know, the door is always open. That's what I want to say. So, Dave, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, and we look forward to, you know, to see what comes down the road in pinball. And, and, and yeah, thank you so much. Sure. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was episode 199, and that was Mr. Dave Sanders, lead designer at Highway Pinball. I think he shared a lot of great information. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And as I've said, this is the year for these companies, not just Highway, but all these companies to figure it out. Because this is the year where there's the most opportunity to get people to buy your games. But the games have to be shipped to distributors to get to consumers. I don't think people are going to want to have their money tied up for much longer in any pinball company. All right? I hope you guys enjoyed this. Episode number 200 is coming up. And I, I have to say, I have to be honest, I failed to secure any special guests. I asked John Borg. I asked, tried to get Gary Stern. I tried to get um, uh, Mr. Pinball himself from Bare Naked Ladies, Ed Robertson, on the show, but he's traveling. Uh, so I'm probably just going to do something a little bit more intimate for show number 200 uh, of Canada's Pinball Podcast. But I don't see this show as being milestone-driven because we do so many of them. I just see it as uh, quality over quantity, even though we have a lot of quantity. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.